This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, everybody. This week, I had the opportunity to do an ad swap. This week, I want to tell you about Compelled, hosted by Paul Hastings. Compelled takes incredible stories of what God is doing in people's lives, combines them with professional sound effects and music, and turns them into an engaging and faith-building audio experience. Travel deep into the jungles of the Philippines with a Christian missionary who was kidnapped by terrorists and held hostage for a year. Hear the testimony of a mother who was falsely accused of murder and sentenced to life in prison, but still clung to her faith. Feel the burning explosion when a jetliner slams into the Pentagon, just yards away from an army officer who is instantly engulfed in flames and confronted with eternity. Every story is true, vivid, and told by the person who lived it and saw God work through it. Listen now to Compelled wherever you find podcasts or by visiting compelledpodcast.com. This episode is part of a long series about how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season three. Thomas Cranmer was burned alive. Now, I'll spare you the details. This is a family show, but he was. After having watched two of his friends meet the same fate, he was executed for treason. Cranmer is an important figure you've probably never heard of. He died in 1556. This hasn't made the news in a long time, but his influence is felt even today. His was a particularly tough time for the Christian church. Martin Luther had only recently nailed up his theses. The Protestant Reformation was in full swing. That period was marked with Bible study, direct access to God without saints mediating, and the end of indulgences, which were essentially ways to buy into heaven for yourself or on behalf of other people. What's more, people were murdered for their beliefs, like Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was a reformer, meaning he was not on the side of the Catholic Church. When King Henry VIII of England wanted to divorce his wife, Cranmer helped assemble the case that he could. Essentially, this action created the Church of England, a church that was sponsored and controlled by a government. Which, you know, may not sound so bad. The church gets financial support, maybe a little access to power. But if the state wants to, say, encourage you to back an evil king, one who keeps executing his wives, it gets sticky really quickly. 
like I said, this was a turbulent time in the Christian church, especially in England where the kings and queens seesawed between Catholic and Protestant. Protestants rise to power and Catholics get dead. Catholics rise to power and Protestants, well, you know. Depending on the beliefs of who was in charge, your religion was either favored or murdered, based on the whims of whoever was king or queen. Cranmer lived in this seesaw world. Not only did he get the king the divorce he wanted, which eventually earned him the title of Archbishop of Canterbury, Cranmer also wrote the Book of Common Prayer. It's basically just what it sounds like printed prayers that were used by the Church of England. It was written in those crazy, tumultuous times, so Cramner had to walk a tightrope. Protestant, but not super Protestant. Liturgical, but not totally Catholic. Reformers didn't like it. Like, really didn't like it. This Book of Common Prayer is sometimes cited as one of the reasons the Puritans despised the Church of England. The Puritans said the book didn't go far enough to distance itself from Rome. It's not the only reason they went to the New World, what would become the United States, but it's part of it. They also didn't like how cozy the Church was getting with the state. After King Henry died, Edward VI became king. No problem for Cranmer, Edward was on the side of Protestantism. So things hummed along for a while until Edward VI died. And Mary Tudor became queen. Mary Tudor was Catholic. The pendulum had swung the other way. She brought back Latin mass, rituals, all sorts of stuff. And people who disagreed with her didn't fare so well, including Cranmer. Forced into isolation in prison, they made him watch his friends as they were burned alive. Under duress, he famously signed documents that put him under papal authority, recanting the things he'd written in support of the Reformation. Yet, he renounced his renunciations before his death, angry at his own hand for having signed the documents. When his time came to be burned, he made sure that his hands were the first thing to meet the flames because they'd betrayed him. Cranmer's story brings up a lot of questions for those of us who are Christians. How do we feel about the bonding of church and state? Because the Church of England was, well, it was the Church of England. It was a branch of the government, not unlike the Russian Orthodox Church in the time of Tsar Nicholas a few hundred years later. Because the church was a part of the government, it could be used to do the bidding of that government. And when the government switched leaders, when that seesaw tipped, everything got upended. Cranmer's story begs us to ask, what length will we go to to get our theological way? And what will we do to those who disagree with us? Things look great when our people are in charge, but what happens when leadership takes things in another direction? When you go from setting the rules to not even having a prayer? 
You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. Let's jump forward a few hundred years to my high school. In 1998 or 1999, I was in a school musical. I was in a lot of them back then, 13 shows in four years. I spent a lot of time in theater. And before every show, we got in the habit of circling around in the dressing room. We took each other's hands and we prayed going around the circle, dressed as baseball players, Russian peasants, mediums, knights in armor, whatever, taking turns praying for each other and for the show. Everyone was invited, but because there was no place else to go, we didn't really have a backstage, people who didn't want to pray were there too in the room with us, usually on the other side of some lockers, but they were there with us. I remember praying out loud before one of those shows. Now, I was a teenager. I was full of energy, but not always full of wisdom. I prayed for the people on the other side of the lockers, not in a loving way, but more in a planting a flag kind of way, claiming some ground. And a way I'm not proud of. That moment sticks with me. Our director pulled me aside a few days later and said that while she supported our right to pray, that we really should be more considerate. Not to do it in a way that hurts other people or makes them feel disrespected. And you know, she was right. There was a line of decency, and I crossed it. Prayer, especially public prayer, is funny like that. It can be both communion with God and a weapon. A way to say, we're on this side of the lockers holding hands in unity to the exclusion of the people on the other side of the lockers. They're not like us. They're not in our club. And that's just what I did. Prayer in public spaces is far from easy, especially when it comes to schools. By the mid-1900s, God was everywhere in public life. The National Prayer Breakfast on the money preached on television and radio in advertisements all over the country. School children held their hands over their hearts every morning to say the Pledge of Allegiance, which had recently added the words under God, making it, in the minds of some, a religious expression. Others called it a political expression that happened to mention God. The Gideons handed out Bibles in many schools. God was on the money. Presidents were inaugurated with prayer. Witnesses called to testify in a court of law swore on a Bible that they would tell the whole truth. So help them God. A wave of public religious expression swept the nation. Sometimes, it seemed like everyone wanted to get on board, including the Board of Regents, the organization that oversees education in one particular state. 
They decided that because the United States had such a rich religious history, that that heritage should be reflected by a prayer every morning in the schools. Now, which state do you think that was? A state that wanted prayer in schools. Now, this was 1951. What would you say? Probably somewhere in the South? The Bible Belt? The Midwest? Kentucky? Georgia? No, this was New York State. That's right, New York State. What many today would consider a pretty liberal part of the Union. In 1951, their Board of Regents, with a unanimous decision, decided to kick off school prayer. It would be a part of their morning flag ceremonies. You know, raising the stars and stripes and saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Adding to this ceremony, they created a few lines that became known as the Regent's Prayer. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessing upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Here's the deal. It wasn't mandatory that the schools do this thing. It was a suggestion, along with suggesting that schools read speeches by President Eisenhower and documents like the Declaration of Independence. It was up to the local school districts to figure out if and how they would implement this. And many did. In June 1955, the New York City superintendent suggested that classroom teachers should, and this is a quote, identify God as the ultimate source of natural and moral law. Where teachers were encouraged to focus the kids on the handiwork of a supreme being that was reflected in the raw materials they were working with. And then to make an ashtray out of it. Okay, so you guessed what state encouraged schools to pray. Now, can you guess who opposed those same prayers? Well, it wasn't Catholic bishops or priests. They were generally cool with it. It was Protestant and Jewish leaders who spoke up. That's right, against prayer in schools. The ACLU got involved, arguing that the statement of the Board of Regents, well, I'll let you hear it in their own words, because I think it's important. They said that the superintendent's statement substitutes for the belief of God a vague theism for which it implies we are all subscribed. The fact is, we do not. The complaint of the ACLU and many Protestants was, in part, that the prayer was vague. It was nonspecific, which is decidedly not in our heritage and is not really how most of us worship. Let's hear the Regent's Prayer one more time. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessing upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Which God is it talking about? It doesn't say. To some, that may seem like a solid compromise. But the reality is that most of us worship a very specific deity. It's a criticism that some have lodged against things like God being on the money and the Pledge of Allegiance. Which God are you talking about? That didn't deter some 300 New York school districts from continuing their prayers. Which sounds like a lot, but it was only about 10% of the total districts in the state. Still, 300 ain't nothing. 
Votes to adopt or avoid school prayer soon divided people along religious lines, often separating Catholics who were for it and Jews who were not. As you may remember, anti-Jewish sentiment ran wild in this era. Some people saw this as another reason to justify their persecution of the Jewish people. The battle over school prayer led to a lawsuit against a district in Long Island, which had adopted the Regent's Prayer. Three of the five people against the district were Jewish. There was worry that maybe this would create anti-Semitic hatred in the region. So, when it came time to pick a lawyer to state their case, the parents chose a Catholic one. The legal battle became known as Engel v. Vitale. The question of the case seems pretty clear. Is prayer in schools legal or illegal? This was no easy decision because the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. I mean, that's cut and dry, right? The Congress can't set up a national religion. Now, remember, one of the main concerns that early settlers had on the continent was the power that the state had over the Church of England. When the king didn't like the rules prohibiting divorce, he simply created his own church. Bada-bing, bada-boom. The government controlled worship, even having one of its own guys write the Book of Common Prayer. Let's hear a little more of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So, if you stop people from praying, is that the government prohibiting the free exercise of religion? Or is a school-endorsed prayer really free exercise? Because kids are instructed by their teachers to do it. And there is social pressure to partake. Kids, of course, were allowed to be excused from the prayer. They didn't have to say it. But if everyone else is doing something, it can be intimidating to leave the room. Think about that. Your morning started. They raised the American flag. And if you were cool with the pledge, you stayed for that. I pledge allegiance to the flag. And then you the have to leave for 15 seconds maybe 30 by the time they get the kids settled. <laughs> then you come back in and everyone is watching you, really standing out, like those kids in my high school who had to stand on the other side of the lockers because the prayer circle was taking up most of the locker room. Is setting aside time to say a specific prayer in a school constitutional? Are students being treated equally if some of them have to stand outside for a few minutes every day? So, a group of parents took this case to court. In August 1959, a county judge decided in favor of the school board, saying that the Regent's Prayer did not violate the Establishment Clause and it certainly did not violate the free exercise of religion. The judge said that public prayer was a part of our national heritage. After all, New York State's judicial system at the time urged its members to display the new motto, which was, In God We Trust. How could acknowledging God in our daily motto really be all that different from acknowledging Him in our prayer? 
the parents struck out on their first attempt. Steer Act 1! So they tried again in the appellate courts. I find in favor of the school district. Steer Act 2! That didn't work, and they took it to the Court of Appeals, the state's highest court, which in 1961 upheld the rulings of the lower courts. The Chief Justice argued in his own words, Not only is this prayer not a violation of the First Amendment, but holding that it is such a violation would be in defiance of all of American history. Strike three. The majority decision pointed to how God was so prevalent in American life. The Declaration of Independence mentions him. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. God on the money, which for paper currency had been there all of four years. Prayers in Congress, the National Day of Prayer, and God being in the Pledge of Allegiance, all of which were added in or around the last decade. Plus, prayers were given at the Continental Congress when the country was founded. The courts argued that religious expression was in our heritage, even though most of their examples were pretty recent. The case had peaked. The only place it could go was the Supreme Supreme Court Court of the United United States. States. When we return, we'll discuss how the Supreme Court referenced the Book of Common Prayer to strike down the Regent's Prayer. Stay with us. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. When we left off, New York State suggested that schools offer a prayer. A pretty bland and generic prayer. About 10% of districts picked it up and ran with it, only to have parents bring a lawsuit, which failed in three different trials until finally reaching the Supreme Court of the United States. You can actually listen to and read the public parts of the trial online, and it's fascinating. I'll put links to it on the website. The case essentially hinged on this question. Was this prayer an act of patriotism or an act of worship? If it was patriotism, then it had a lot in common with the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Fundamentally, what is the Pledge of Allegiance? Is it patriotic or is it a statement of faith? As we know, its history is rooted in patriotism, a nationalistic desire. The part about God was only added in the 1950s. It is essentially a patriotic statement with a mention of God. Now, what about the Regent's Prayer? Listen again. What is it about? 
Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. See, the formula is flipped. Instead of a patriotic statement with a mention of God, the prayer is a statement of faith with a mention of the country. In part, this is why the Supreme Court struck down the decisions of the lower courts. Because the prayer is clearly a government-sponsored endorsement of religion, and not the expression of patriotism that the New York Board of Regents said it was. Justice Hugo Black asked for the privilege of writing the majority opinion. Black is an interesting character. Himself theologically liberal, he's said to have told his son, speaking of the Christian faith, I cannot believe, but I can't not believe either. He was an agnostic, but his opinion really made me think. It's quite eloquent and reads like a spiritual pilgrimage, laying out the historic basis for his argument. He's referring here to the Book of Common Prayer, which I referenced at the beginning of the show. The controversies over the book and what should be its contents repeatedly threatened to disrupt the peace of that country as the accepted forms of prayer in the established church changed with the views of the particular ruler that happened to be in control at the time. Other groups lacking the necessary political power to influence the government on the matter decided to leave England and its established church and seek freedom in America from England's governmentally ordained and supported religion. Essentially, he argued that one of the reasons English settlers came to this continent was because they were escaping publicly mandated religion. Justice Black was also concerned about what it would mean for the country if this kind of thing were encouraged. Remember that seesaw from the beginning of the show? When one king or queen died, the next was free to change the religion, throwing the entire country into chaos with every new administration. Justice Black argued that the Founding Fathers included the Establishment Clause specifically to keep that from happening in the U.S. We don't often consider that in discussions of church and state. The destabilizing effect it would have on our country if we change religion or denominational preferences with each successive administration. Maybe that seems like a weird thing to be frightened of. But the decision was handed down during the Kennedy administration. John F. Kennedy was the nation's first Catholic president. Ask not what your country can do for you. His opponents worried that he would be taking orders from the Pope, that his religion would fundamentally change the United States. Again, that would not have been unheard of in the history of the world. That's what happened in England in the 1500s. It's the reason Thomas Cranmer was burned at the stake. If Kennedy's opponents had seen their nightmare become a reality, things would have been bleak indeed. Of course, none of that stuff happened. But looking back through the lens of history, we know the difference it makes when the church is tied to the state. I've been so taken by Justice Black's opinion that I've recorded it myself and will post it for patrons of the show to hear in full. I think it's very telling. As you can imagine, the case caused a stir in the media. Headlines read, God banned from the state. People were in an uproar, including Billy Graham. 
Newswire sent out almost exclusively negative comments from members of Congress, ignoring those who sided with the decision. Sensationalism got the best of them, as it does for all of us from time to time. People worried that religion was being outlawed in the country. The thing is, it wasn't. The court had actually done a lot to make that distinction. The regent's prayer was illegal because it had been written and implemented by a government body. They did not outlaw prayer or prayer in schools, just prayers written and expressed by the government. There's a big difference. Even today, you can still pray in schools. I mean, clearly, I did it when I was in high school. The crux is in who is prescribing the prayer. We have been arguing about school prayer ever since. It still comes up some 60 years later. Conservative Christian leaders often look at the state of schools and wish that we had prayer in the schools. More specifically, scheduled prayer in schools as part of the daily routine. 79% of Americans questioned in a Gallup poll at the time said that they supported, quote-unquote, religious exercises in schools. Justice Hugo Black received over a thousand letters in opposition, some of them downright nasty. But he responded in the same way President Truman had responded years earlier when he was asked to institute a national day of prayer. They both quoted Matthew 6, which tells Christians to pray in their rooms with their doors closed rather than in public where their acts of piety can be seen. Now, Jesus prayed in public. The disciples prayed in public. It's not as much about the place as it is the reason, the heart behind the prayer. Here is Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Let's bring this home. Why do we pray? You and I, why do we do it? Sometimes Jesus prayed in order to teach his followers how to do it. Some would argue that this is what the schools were doing, teaching children how to pray as Jesus taught his disciples, with some notable differences. As far as we know, the disciples didn't begin their day reciting the same prayer. It brings up an important question. Do prayers have any spiritual weight if they are wrote, said without passion or feeling. Some Jewish and Protestant leaders didn't like the regent's prayer because it didn't mention Jesus or which God it referred to. Also, what happens if a new religious fad enters in? In the United States as it stands now, it probably wouldn't change the fundamental bedrock of the country. If Mitt Romney had become president, we wouldn't all have had to convert to Mormonism just like Americans weren't forced into Catholicism under Kennedy. Usually, when we talk about school prayer, there is this sense that our country is fundamentally changing, that God is being pulled from the public eye. Yet, this happened 60 years ago. Most of the people listening to my voice right now did not grow up with the Regent's Prayer. Preachers talk about Engel v. Vitale as if it was yesterday but we haven't recited rote prayers in schools for half a century. 
Is religious expression in schools a good thing, a bad thing, or something in between? We need to celebrate the fact that our country is not subject to the theological whims of our leaders. Prayer is a good thing, a great thing. But remember my story about praying in the locker room before a theater show? Prayer can also be a weapon. It can bring us closer to God, and we can use it to push others further away. The funny thing about weapons, we love them when we're holding them. But when they're aimed at us, when we stand next to the fire ourselves, the story changes pretty quickly. If you don't believe me, just ask Thomas Cranmer. This episode was inspired by the book In God We Trust by Kevin Cruz. While he declined my invitation to appear on the show, I strongly recommend his book. The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald was also a great benefit. The full text of Justice Black's opinion is a really interesting read. I'll put links to it in our show notes and on the website. Also, Truce is a listener-supported show. If you become a monthly patron, you'll gain access to my reading of the opinion. You can learn more at trucepodcast.com slash donate. I'm working hard to do this job full time. I'm a long way from that right now, but your gift of any size will really help. You can also find Truce on social media and at Truce Podcast. You can learn more about me and my book, Cradle Robber, and my films, Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, all on the website at trucepodcast.com. Also, I didn't realize while I was recording this episode that Justice Hugo Black had once been a member of the KKK. Unfortunately, I finished the episode before I found that out, but I still think his opinion on this matter is worth noting. Special thanks to everyone who gave me their voices for this episode. Eric Nivens of the Halfway There podcast, Jenna Erlinson of the Bridge of the Faithful podcast, and Shay and Michelle Watson of the Pantry podcast. Additional audio came from C-SPAN. God willing, I'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.